0: 11. If anything be familiar, it is Cicero's analogy on the subject of the Epicurean system, which claimed that the world had been made from atoms falling randomly in space. I would rather believe, said the great orator, that letters thrown into the air would fall so as to form a poem. Thousands have repeated this thought and praised it, Yet as far as I know, no one has thought to give it the completeness which it lacks. Imagine that handfuls of printed characters thrown from the top of a tower should on landing make Racine's Athalia. What could one infer? That a mind had directed their fall and arrangement. Common sense will never find another answer. 12. Let us now examine any particular political constitution, England's, for example. It certainly was not made a priori. Her statesmen never assembled to say, Let us create three powers, balancing them in such a manner, etc. No one of them ever thought of such a thing. The constitution is the work of circumstances whose number is infinite. Roman laws, ecclesiastical laws, feudal laws, Saxon, Norman, and Danish customs, the privileges, prejudices, and pretensions of every segment of society, wars, rebellions, revolutions, the conquest, the crusades, every virtue, every vice, all sorts of knowledge, and all errors and passions. In sum, all these factors acting together and forming by their admixture and interdependent effects countless millions of combinations have at last produced, after several centuries, the most complex unity and the most propitious equilibrium of political powers that the world has ever seen." 13. Now, since these agencies, thus tossed into the air, so to speak, have arranged themselves so neatly, although no man among the vast multitude which acted in this vast world ever knew what he was doing in relation to the whole or foresaw the outcome, it follows that these agencies were guided in their course by an infallible power. Perhaps the greatest misconception in a century of follies was that fundamental laws could be written a priori, while they are obviously the work of a higher power, and committing them to writing long after is the surest way of proving that they are no longer valid. 14. It is quite remarkable that God, having condescended to speak to man, has himself shown these truths in the two revelations his goodness has given us. There was a clever man who marked a sort of era in our century through the desperate conflict his works exhibit between the worst prejudices of the period, of sect, of habit, etc., and the purest intentions, the most sincere sentiment, and the most valuable knowledge. He decided that instruction coming directly from God, or given only according to his commands, should primarily certify to man his existence. Precisely the opposite is true. For the prime characteristic of this teaching, Is not to reveal God's existence or attributes, but to suppose the whole already known without our understanding why or how. Therefore, it does not state that there is or you shall believe in only one God, omnipotent and everlasting, etc. It begins in purely narrative form. In the beginning, God created etc., which assumes that the dogma was known before the writing. 15. Let us pass on to Christianity, the greatest of all imaginable institutions, since wholly divine and made for all men and all ages. It too conforms to the general law, Its author certainly was able to write himself or to cause his doctrines to be written. Yet he did neither, at least not in a legislative form. The New Testament, posterior to the death of the lawgiver, and even to the founding of his religion, contains narrative, admonitions, moral precepts, exhortations, commands, threats, etc. But nowhere a collection of dogma expressed imperatively. The evangelists describing the Last Supper, when God loved us even unto the end, had a fine opportunity to command our belief in writing, but they carefully refrain from declaring or ordaining anything. Indeed, we read, go teach in their admirable history, but never. Teach this or that. If doctrine is found in the writings of a sacred historian, he is simply expressing it as something already familiar. The symbols which appeared later are professions of faith, that it may be recognized, or for contradicting the errors of the moment. There one reads, We believe, never you shall believe. We recite them in private. We chant them in the temple with stringed instruments and organs as true prayers because they are formulas of submission, confidence, and faith directed to God and not ordinances addressed to man. I should like to see the Confession of Augsburg or the 39 Articles set to music. They would certainly be amusing. The first symbols are far from containing the announcement of all our doctrines. Indeed, the early Christians would have considered the announcement of them all as a great sin. The same applies to the Holy Scriptures. There never was a more shallow idea than to seek the entirety of Christian dogma in them. Not a line in these writings. Declares or even hints at the plan of making from them a code or dogmatic statement of all the articles of faith. 16. Moreover, if a people possesses one of these codes of belief, we may be sure of three things. 1. Their religion is false. 2. They have written their religious code in a fit of delirium. 3. This people will soon scoff at the code, which can have neither strength nor durability. Such, for example, are the famous articles, which are signed by more than read, and read by more than believe them. Not only is this catalogue of dogma accounted next to nothing, In the country which gave it birth, but it is also obvious, even to a foreigner, that the illustrious proprietors of this sheet of paper are greatly hampered by it. They would like to make it disappear, since it irritates the national good sense, enlightened by the passage of time, and since it recalls an unfortunate beginning. But the Constitution is written. 17. Surely these same Englishmen would never have sought Magna Carta had not the nation's privileges been violated, or unless these privileges had also existed before the Charter. In this respect, what is true of the state is true of the Church as well. If Christianity had never been attacked, it would never have determined dogma in writing. But whenever dogma has been fixed in writing, it is always because it existed previously in its natural state, speech. The real instigators of the Council of Trent were the two arch-innovators of the 16th century. Their followers, having become more moderate, have since suggested that we expunge this basic law because it contains certain words which are disagreeable to them. And they have tried to tempt us by setting this price on a reunion, which would make us accomplices without reconciling us. But this request has no justification in religion or philosophy. They themselves formally introduced to religious language those words which now harass them let us hope that they may today learn to pronounce them. The faith would be a thousand times more angelic if a sophistical opposition had not forced her to write. She weeps over these decisions which rebellion extorted from her, and which always were evils, since they all suppose disbelief or attack and could only arise in the midst of the most dangerous disturbances. A state of war raised these venerable ramparts around the truth. No doubt they protect her, but they conceal her too. They have made her unassailable, but by that very act less accessible. Ah, that is not her desire. She wants only to hold all humanity in her embrace. 18. I have spoken of Christianity as a system of belief. Now I shall consider it from the point of view of its governance, sovereign net, in its most extensive manifestation. There, it is monarchical, as everyone knows, and this is as it should be by the very nature of things, monarchy becomes more necessary in proportion as an association increases in size. It is not forgotten that an infamous person could nevertheless meet with approval in our time when he affirmed that France was geographically monarchical. Indeed, one could scarcely express this incontrovertible truth better. But as the size of the French nation precludes even the thought of every other form of government, how much more must this sovereignty be exclusively monarchical, which by the essential nature of its constitution will always have subjects on every part of the globe, that is, the papacy? Here, experience supports theory. This being established, Who would not believe that such a monarchy would be more strictly defined and limited than any as to the prerogative of its leader? Yet, the exact opposite is true. Read the countless volumes brought forth by foreign war, and even by a species of civil war, which has its advantages as well as its inconveniences. You will invariably see cited facts alone and not an appeal to authority. It is also remarkable, surely, that the Supreme Tribunal should steadily permit dispute over what appears to everyone to be the most fundamental question of the Constitution without ever having wished to settle it by a formal law. This is Unless I am greatly mistaken, because of the very basic importance of the question. Some misguided fellows, bold only because of weakness, took it upon themselves to decide it in 1682, in spite of a great man, and it was one of the most solemn imprudences ever perpetrated. Its monument, which endures, is doubtless wholly to be condemned but especially so for one feature hitherto unnoticed, although more vulnerable to enlightened criticism than any other. By writing, and without even apparent necessity, which carried the fault to excess, the famous declaration dared to decide a question, which should invariably have been left to practical wisdom. Enlightened, by the universal conscience. This is the only point of view in harmony with the intent of this work, but it is quite worthy, in any case, of the contemplation of every just mind and upright heart. 19. In their general sense, these ideas were known to the ancient philosophers, who clearly perceived the faint, indeed almost total, insignificance of the written word for great institutions. No one has ever realized or expressed this truth better than Plato, who invariably was first on the way to finding all great truths. According to him, the man who acquires all his education from things written will never have more than the appearance of wisdom. The spoken word, he adds, is to writing as a man is to his portrait. The products of art appear as living things to us, but if questioned, they maintain a dignified silence. It is the same with writing, which knows not what to say to one man and what to conceal from another. It cannot defend itself if groundlessly attacked or insulted, for its author is never present to support it. Thus, he who believes himself able, by writing alone, to establish a clear and lasting doctrine is a great fool. If he really possessed the seeds of truth, he could never believe that a little black liquid and a pen could germinate them in the world protect them from harsh weather, and make them sufficiently effective. As for whoever undertakes writing laws or civil constitutions, in the belief that he can give them adequate conviction and stability because he has written them, he disgraces himself, whether or not other people say so. He shows an equal ignorance of the nature of inspiration and delirium right and wrong, good and evil. This ignorance is shameful, even when approved by the whole body of the common people. 20. After the wisdom of paganism, it will be instructive to hear Christian philosophy again. How much better it would be said the most eloquent of the Greek fathers, if we had never needed writing, but had the divine precepts been imprinted by grace in our hearts, as they are with ink in our books. Since we have lost this grace through our own fault, we must follow the second best course, without, however, forgetting the preeminence of our original condition. To the righteous of the Old Testament, God revealed nothing in writing. Seeing the purity of their hearts, he spoke directly to them. But when the Hebrew people sank into wickedness, books and laws became necessary. The same process recurred under the empire of the new revelation, for Christ left not a single writ to his apostles. He commended them not to books, but to the Holy Spirit. He shall bring all things to your remembrance. But because, in time, sinful men rebelled against faith and morality, books were again required.